morning, everyone. I am so glad to see you. My name is Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. Today we have a special day. There's some three folks getting baptized at the end of our worship service time today. And for those of you that call this church home, that invest in this place and serve and pray for us, uh, I just wanted to offer this thought to you that when you see these folks up here, you know that your work is making a difference. Uh, you really are. God's using this church to really do what we believe he's called us to do, to give families in northern Cincinnati their best opportunity to become fully developing followers of Jesus. That's our mission, and you guys are helping make that happen. Well, you've caught us today on the second week of a message series. It's five weeks long called Grace That Is Greater. And when you came into the auditorium, you probably got a half sheet of paper that looks like this. On the back are the message notes. You can follow along if you want. Not everything I say, obviously, is on here, but the big points are. And then there's a little bit of white space for you to write some other things. Grace that is greater. Grace that is greater. When the Apostle Paul was writing the big, long letter that we call the Book of Romans, it's really an amazing theological treatise, logical thought. He lays out a lot of cool things. He begins with this thought. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel has power. Today, we're going to talk about the gospel power. We're going to talk about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save people. A lot of us in this room have experienced that. We've experienced the grace of Jesus applied to our life. It has redeemed us. It has called us back. It has allowed us to become his sons and daughters. But there's also power in the gospel that allows the sons and daughters of the king, Christians, followers of Jesus, it allows them to walk the life that God has called them to walk. It's not just power given to us once and then you're done. It's an ongoing power in our life to bring all that God means for us to have to our lives. And that shows up in this dynamic of grace and forgiveness. Pastor Josh, our kids pastor, who has an amazing team, they're doing great stuff uh, back there while we're meeting in here, kind of on that side of the room over there, and they're doing, doing phenomenal stuff, but he told you about two guests that we're going to have. I want to mention one of their stories to you just a little bit more in depth. On March 1 of this year, we're going to tell the story you're going to hear from Debbie Morris. It was May 28, 1980, that she was on a date with her boyfriend, Mark. Mark and Debbie were sitting by the river about to have a picnic where a lot of the local folks in her little area in Louisiana would go. And there was a knock at the window. And two men who had been on a, on a crime spree already were there with evil intent. Robert Lee Willie and Joe Joseph, uh, his buddy, were there, and they were up to no good. They pulled these two young people out of the car, and for the next 30 hours, they were in incredible torment. She was raped repeatedly over 30 hours. He was shot and stabbed. They cut his throat so deeply that for months he did not talk. They both survived. And this 16-year-old little girl, young lady, Debbie, thought that she could just put this behind her. And so she tried. She tried for years. Then later on, when there was a trial for these two guys and she had to testify against them, a nun befriended Robert Lee Willie while he was in prison on death row. And uh, she writes about her story in a book called, for, uh, called uh, The Dead Man Walking. It was made into a movie. You can rent it. Sean Penn, uh, Susan Sarandon starred in it. 
And it's all about this nun's engagement with the character who really is based on Robert Lee Willie's experience. And the crimes behind the story are what happened to Debbie and a few others. So when this movie and this book came out and they got notoriety and they won awards, here this young lady who had thought she had put everything behind her now has to deal with all of it again. And all of her friends are talking about it. Most of them don't even know that it, part of the story overlaps her story. And brought to the surface was all this pain. And all the stuff she thought she had left behind was right there present again. And it threw her into a depression. It threw her into deep emotional distress. But it also gave her an opportunity to discover a love from God and a grace from God and a power from God so that those things that happened to her years ago did not have to define her for the rest of her life. So I want you to come and hear that story. It's a great way for us to capstone this message series. But my own experience in learning and observing the power of grace and forgiveness is a little bit different. I certainly have my own experiences, but on our family, the mark that uh, is the, the darkest and the most indelible is the story of what happened to my father. When my father was 14 years old. He was present when his own father was murdered. He was there when it happened. My grandfather had been out drinking and corralling like he always did, and he had come home late, and he had been out with some relatives and some friends, and he comes home to sleep it off, to get up, go to work the next day, do it all over again. And so he's in the living room, and somebody begins to throw rocks at the house, and it agitates my drunken grandfather. He stands up, opens the door, yells out into the night sky, you guys had better stop it, and some nice choice words. My father, at about 14 years old, standing right beside of him, and there's a single shot from a 22 rifle, a bullet, the sound pierces the night sky, and the bullet pierces my grandfather's heart. He falls back into the doorway, and he dies. So I knew that story about my dad, but over the years growing up, he would tell us little bits and pieces, not the whole thing. When my grandmother passed away, years later, I'm an adult and married, we go to the graveyard, and on the way back, we thought from the graveyard, we make an odd turn to a place I had never been before in my father's hometown, and we go to this second graveyard. I have no idea what's going on. I can tell my father's very upset. He you know, should be his mother had passed away, and he goes and stands at this very nondescript grave, and it's the grave of my grandfather. I had never been there before. My dad says to those of us there, I, I, this is the first time I've been here since that day we buried him years and years and years and years ago. Over the years, the story kind of filtered into my family because it was the hatred that my father held in his heart for the guy that killed his father that was a major obstacle in my father coming to faith in Jesus. My dad knew just enough of the gospel to know that Christians are supposed to be people of love. They walk in forgiveness. Whatever preaching he had heard had gotten that right. And my dad thought and believed and made decisions on the fact that if he came to Jesus, somehow he was going to have to let this go. And he did not want to let it go. It was the thing that animated him and motivated him. When he didn't want to go to work, he would tell us, I was going to go to work and provide for my family in the way that my dad couldn't. When something would happen wrong in his life and he'd have a little altercation with somebody, my dad decided they're not going to get the best of me. So he would battle and fight, but typically with incredible wisdom and discipline because he was going to live the life that was stolen from his father and affected the kids as my grandfather's death threw them into abject poverty. And so this became the defining moment of my dad's life. And it's a story that I heard over and over and over again. But the most powerful part of the whole story 
is years later, my dad is in his hometown, and he gets word that there's some family that is uh, in the hospital. One, one of his uncles, actually, is in the hospital. And my dad had never really told us the whole story of who was all involved in stuff, but the man that's in the hospital laying dying with only a few days to live is the man that shot my grandfather. And uh, he was actually a relative. Um, that often happens when there's alcohol involved. You know, people act stupid and all that good stuff. And so my dad goes to the hospital, and he shares the gospel with this guy. And what was, for my dad, years and years of hatred, turning to Jesus and a softening of heart, ultimately becomes a beautiful moment where my dad looks the murderer of his own father in the eyes and tells him, I forgive you. Jesus loves you. And all that stuff in the past can be redeemed and washed away by the power of the blood of Jesus. So this is a story that I have experienced personally. Now, not at the level of my father, but I watched a man struggle. And I heard my dad more than once pray, God, help me. Help me. I don't want to carry this thing. And I've seen the power of the gospel in my dad. In my own way, no story near as dramatic. But in this church, over and over again, as people have had very horrific things happen to them, or a loved one has had very horrific things happen to them, and I've seen the love of God at work, the power of the gospel, not to just save people and wash away their sins, but to literally put them on a different path and animate their life in a completely different direction. It's a beautiful thing. And the truth is, is that God offers us this power to bring us into a relationship with him, but also so that his power can, not just in heaven, but here and now, begin to wash over our lives and make a profound difference. Today is the first of a two-part within our five-part message series, where I want to talk to you about this thing that God does for us when he redeems us, when he makes us his children, when he adopts us into his family, when he forgives our sins, when he reconciles us to himself, all the work that God does on our behalf that we cannot do, it is nothing but grace at work. I want to help you understand it with a little bit more clarity because when we see what God has done for us, it gives us an understanding of some of the ways that he wants to do not just for us, but he wants to do in us and through us. When we watch how God redeems, it shows us in part some of how we can be about redeeming. When we watch how God forgives, it shows us how in part we can be about forgiving. When we watch how God reconciles people that are struggling in relationships with himself, it gives us some clues about reconciliation and the power of the gospel at work in us and how it restores relationships. There are people in this room whose marriages were dead. They'd been dead for years, and yet God softened one or two hearts, and now they're thriving in a relationship. There are people in this room who've experienced sexual assault, and they thought that it would be the defining characteristic of their life, and everything that, they ha that happened to them after that would be viewed through the lens of this pain. And they've discovered, while those thoughts aren't completely gone, and it never is going to be something that did not occur, it doesn't define them, and it is not the defining adjectives of their life. In fact, God has even brought some pretty beautiful things out of some of the most dark experiences. There are people in this room who've had deep fights with their siblings or with their parents or with their children. 
and you have seen God move powerfully. I want to call us today to a bit of a, if you'll allow me just a couple words here, a bit of an academic observation of what God has done for us. And the next week, I want to talk about some of the practicalities in light of what God has done that we can do. But I think any honest conversation about forgiveness about grace at work in this world begins with the originator of grace. And this whole grace idea was his. It's not ours. He's the designer, the author of it. And so we're going to, for the next few minutes, go back to the design of forgiveness, of grace, of salvation, of reconciliation that God wrote in the pages of Scripture through the experiences with his son and in many of our lives. We're not going to park in one particular passage. Most of them will be up here on the screen, and you can follow along. But if you want to grab your message notes, let's begin, first of all, in Psalm 103, verse 12. Look what the Bible says about the Lord. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins, our mistakes, our errors from us. Now, many of you know that if you put your finger at some point on the equator and you move east, on that globe, right? So you got a globe, finger on the equator, and you're spinning it. You put your finger on the equator and you begin to move the, the globe in an easterly direction. You'll never, ever come to the west. This is the metaphor here. God goes in the direction of forgiveness. There is no mixture in that. There is no duplicity in that. It's not like if you go north to south. If you put your finger in the North Pole on a globe and begin to move to the South Pole, you're going south. But the moment you hit the South Pole, any more movement, you begin to move back up north again. So east and west, north and south, completely different. God, as it relates to us, is an east to west kind of God. They don't meet. He's all in the direction of love and grace and forgiveness. And when he's done work on our behalf, there's no one doing that. God is proficient and effective in the work that he does. Look at what the prophet Micah says in Micah 7. He will again have companion on us, and he will subdue or put under our iniquities. And then talking about God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So the stuff that God has against us, that he could hold against us, he's going to put it under other values. How deep down is it going to go? All the way to the deepest parts of the ocean. And then Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, the last part of that verse, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sins, I will remember no more. God has this ability to literally not remember our sins. He's going to treat us as if they have not occurred. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing that God does on our behalf. And every person in this room and every person watching online who has submitted their life to Jesus receives salvation by grace, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, every single person gets the full benefit of God's forgiveness. The Spirit calls. They acknowledge that they're a sinner. God gives them the ability by his Spirit to respond in faith. It's all the work of God. But I want us to slow down for just a moment or two and look at some of the mechanical things that are actually going on. Because when we look at the depth of God's activity in salvation, we see something profound and insightful about forgiveness, about reconciliation, about the power of grace at work. In your message notes, I'm going to give you a couple of $10 theological terms. They weren't originally theological terms. 
They're originally just terms from life, but the writers of the Bible borrowed everyday language to make some very profound points. So in the message notes, your first blank at the top, you can write the word up here on the screen, it'll be for you, justification. Justification is a theological term that has its roots in the court system. It's a lawyeristic term. So justification occurs when the legal penalties are removed by the decree of the judge and a person is declared not guilty. This is the theological term justification. It's something God does for us when he looks at us and he says, you are actually guilty. You've done these things. The Apostle Paul described it this way. There are things you knew you should do that you did not do. Guilty. There are things you knew you should not do that you did. Guilty. You and I are guilty before God by our own choices. Our nature is also broken so that we cannot respond to God. So God looks at a very guilty person sitting in the, you know, in the, in, in the stand, and he looks at that person, and he bangs his gavel down, and he says, even though you're guilty, because I'm the judge, I have the authority, I declare you not guilty of the offenses that you are charged with. That is an act of justification. Now, as Christians, when we talk about being forgiven of our sins, we're typically, in a, in a mechanical, specific way, we're talking about God justifying and wiping away the penalty of our guilt. Last week, we talked about the fact that there was a day in your existence when you weren't so awesome. I know it's very popular to only talk about how awesome people are, but biblically speaking, the Bible says that you and I are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. But salvation becomes for, uh, comes to us by a gift from God, not works so that we can boast about it. That's Ephesians chapter 2. So God looks at us and says, you're guilty, but I have authority to declare you not guilty. That act, that banging of the gavel, is we are justified or forgiven of our sins. When we talk about Jesus being our Lord and Savior, the word Savior specifically refers to people who could not save themselves, so God comes along and lifts them up, declares them not guilty before him. And that's a big deal because a holy God, the Bible tells us, and brokenness or sin can't inhabit the same space. So what God does is he says, I really, really want to have a relationship with you. I really, really want you to live as my son and my daughter. And so what I'm going to do to begin this process is, is I'm going to stir your heart I'm going to make you aware of your need. I'm going to call you to repentance by my Holy Spirit. That's called the work of conviction. And then when you're awakened to your need, I'm going to give you an ability by my Spirit to respond in faith. And your repentance and your faith, which is both a gift from me to you, is going to allow you to receive my forgiveness. Now a holy God can approach sinful people. And people who are sinful but washed clean can approach a holy God. It's all him. This is theologically justification. It's fair to call it forgiveness. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Billy Graham wrote a book years ago, How to Have Peace with God. And this is what he's talking about. 
coming to terms with the fact that you're broken, I'm broken. If we were broken medically, he would have sent a doctor. If we were broken financially, he would have sent a banker or an advisor. If we were broken simply legally, he would have sent a lawyer. But we were broken in the deepest parts of us, so he sends a savior. And he does it for us. This is grace. We talked a lot about that last week. But that is not all that God does. God does not simply remove the guilt and penalty of sin by faith in Christ alone. No, the death and resurrection of Jesus satisfies the requirement for justice. So God forgives the offense. And when he does, the second thing now is possible. See, God didn't want to just forgive people and say, you're forgiven, now go. You're forgiven now, go do your thing. We connected for a moment and you're good. No, what he actually wants is an active relationship. So he does the second $10 word for us today. The word is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, whereas justification is a legal term, reconciliation comes to us from the world of finance historically. Reconciliation occurs when the accounting totals have been equally balanced and the books are in harmony. Some of you know about double entry accounting. The books are balanced when the bottom lines match. That's what that means. And so since it was an accounting term uh, that was commonly used, a lot of people in business and finance were talking about things being out of harmony or being unbalanced. That term began to be used in other areas of life like relationships. It's not difficult to see why. You have a husband and wife. Things are out of harmony. They're unbalanced. There's a brokenness there. They're not on the same page. The values don't match. But they come back together, and now they are reconciled. Make sense? This is what happens. So God, this is important for where we're going. God doesn't just forgive us. In fact, forgiveness is not even the end goal. Forgiveness is a mechanical thing that has to happen for the goal to occur. The goal is an active relationship between God and his children. The goal is actually reconciliation. So the Bible says that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. The only way that can happen is is there has to be a washing and a purifying. We're going to acknowledge the washing that God does for us through this act of baptism. The act doesn't wash people away any more than a wedding ring doesn't make somebody married. But it does symbolize all that God has done in joining a man and woman together, and it symbolizes what God has done in the washing. And when the washing has occurred, now what is possible is for two distant people, holy and unholy, to come together because the unholy have been declared holy by the holy, and they can come together and have it the same space. The real goal is reconciliation. So, If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he writes these words, all this is from God, all this work of God, I've been talking about, all the goodness is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And then there's the strong emphatic, be reconciled to God. And right after that, he tells us as followers of Jesus, your job is actually to get involved in the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people who are apart from God close to God. God God uses us and he enjoins us to help do the work that God is doing in the world, the reconciling work. But the real point is that God wants a relationship. 
He doesn't want to just wash you away and wash away the dirt. He does that. But he does that so that you and him can have an active relationship. See, the gap created by sin is spanned so that a person is brought near to God in a relationship. The death and resurrection of Jesus becomes the bridge that allows us to come near to God so that the distant parties are reunited. So number three blank, biblically, justification provides for the possibility of reconciliation. The forgiveness of our sins allows us to be reconciled to God. So this reconciliation is a big deal to Jesus. Look at the disciples. There's Peter, my favorite, always putting his foot in his mouth, always. All through the Gospels, he proves that he is a work in progress. Now, by the time you get to the book of Acts, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Learnings have taken root. He's beginning to walk in his calling in a special way. But in Matthew 18, then here's what the Bible says. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, or 77, if you will, depending on the translation. In other words, a whole lot more than you naturally think would be. See, God forgives and reconciles us to himself, and he wants us to forgive. But what he really wants for us to do as his children is to walk with an openness towards reconciling with people who are also broken and sinners. See, God delights in reconciling his children to himself, but he also delights in reconciling his children to each other. God takes deep joy every time a husband and wife are going in a different direction and they turn and come back together and reconnect. There's deep joy in that. So much of the New Testament is written to people who are broken who are messed up, who are sinners, forgiven, washed clean, but still living in a very broken world and brokenness even in ourselves. And so that brokenness in the world, that brokenness in ourselves, and that brokenness in other people, it conspires together, and regularly there's hurt and pain and offense. And in this room, if you could see behind the curtain, there are chapters of the lives of people in this room that they never want to tell. There's deep pain, deep hurt both brought on by people in this room to others and brought by people in this room to other people in this room and brought by other people not in this room to people in this room. The hurt is a universal experience. The only people who don't feel hurt are those who are oblivious or are living on a different planet than everyone else of us because you can't escape this earth without some bruises and some bumps. And so, so much of the New Testament deals with this topic of grace and forgiveness and how are Christians supposed to act. And Jesus would say, you've seen the world says do it this way, but I say to you, my children, do it this way. And you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. You've heard an eye for an eye, but I say to you something different. So, so much of the New Testament deals with the fact that human beings living in a shared space are going to bump up against each other. And I would just like to offer a commentary that our shared space is even more crowded now because it used to be you could go to your home and take your phone off the hook. Now there's social media everywhere you go. And so offense is on the rise and the bumping together of people is on the rise and the the splintering of relationships is on the rise and we're in a political year. It's on the rise. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. 
Really glad I'm a pastor in election years. It's going to be a lot of fun. So the Bible regularly talks about this stuff, but, 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 sometimes in Christian understanding, we short-circuit the deep work that God wants to do by slapping phrases, phrases that we mean well with, but they don't convey the depth and complexity of the issues. And since they don't deal with the depth and complexity of issues, sometimes their real deep work doesn't get dealt with. The whole point of today and next Sunday is to deal with some of the deep work of forgiveness. Here's some of the ways that we kind of short-circuit the process. For instance, sometimes we don't think deeply about what God has done for us. Like we don't understand that he literally takes guilty people who know they're guilty, cry out to God in their guilt, and he redeems them. And then he says, now let's have a relationship. Like we don't think through that. We just say, I got saved, or I'm forgiven, or I did my spiritual penance. When what's really happening is God is working in profound, distinct ways to secure the relationship. Multifaceted, multi-layered work to secure relationship. And we can blow by that with simple language, which isn't wrong. And sometimes it's helpful to short to use the shortest sentence as possible to describe what God's doing. But if what we want to do is look at how God operates in forgiveness and draw our cues from him so that we can operate in forgiveness, we might want to just pull the curtain back a little bit and see what he's doing. So when Christians say things like, well, just forgive and forget, that many times cannot be a very helpful phrase. Now, if by forgive and forget, Christians mean, hey, you're not defined by that thing. You can move on with the power of God at work in you and with your own healing and wholeness in place that that thing doesn't have chains on you. If you mean by forgive and forget that it doesn't have a hold over you, that's a helpful phrase. But if by forgive and forget, what you really mean is don't talk about it, don't deal with it, don't think about it, don't pray about it, just act like it never occurred. Most of the time, that is a recipe for deeply repressed what will become anger, depression, frustration, short fuse, or disengagement. This happens, by the, time, by the way, all the time in marriages. It happens all the time in church people relationships. It happens all the time among siblings. Jill and I decided years ago that we were going to be one of those parents that made our kids say they were sorry to each other when they did something wrong. Now, we knew that when they said it, they were lying. We knew that. You know how we knew? You would hear phrases like this. Well, I'm sorry. But sorry, the way it was spoken, really meant, I kind of hate your guts right now, and I'm only saying this because mom and dad make it me. Or, or it kind of meant, I'm sorry then. One of my kids said, I'm sorry then. Wait a second. That means there's a comma after the word then. What else do you really want to say that you don't want to say because we're not going to let you say it in front of you? Yeah. But here, here's why we did it. We weren't trying to make them lie. We wanted them to get to the point where it was okay for them to say, and they could hear themselves say, they would grow into understanding that I'm wrong here. I take some responsibility for it because when that happens, we know that real healing can occur. Now listen, you know this intuitively. Maybe you haven't thought about it for a while. But if you have a husband, I'm just picking an example. You have a husband who consistently lies to his wife about where he is and he's got secret you know, social media accounts. And every once in a while, she finds out he's texting some old girlfriend from high school. And then he says, I'm sorry. And he means it, and he cries, because you know, that's what they do when they're caught. But then a month later, she sees it again. And he says, I'm sorry. And a month later, he 
does something else again, and there's less and less trust. Eventually, the words themselves don't mean anything. But if he's doing something foolish like that, which often occurs, by the way, in an age of social media and hidden passwords, which is why as a couple you should never have hidden passwords and never have secret accounts, right? That's just stupid, right? There you go. But if you do and you get caught and the husband says, I am so sorry, I can't believe I got here. Here's all my passwords. Watch me shut things down. And at any point you want to go into any of my accounts, whatever. And I'm not going to hold from you any more data. Now that's a believable kind of I accept culpability. You see the difference? I accept culpability. And when there's an acceptance of culpability and error, then the other person can go, man, I want to forgive you. And your demeanor and your words and your acknowledgement of your wrong makes it easy for me to do this. And by the way, that's not an unfair expectation. This is exactly what the Lord calls us to. God, I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. You're right. I was wrong all along. You were right all along. Sometimes I was wrong ignorantly, and other times I was wrong willfully, but you were always right. And I can't do it. I can't save me. By the way, the Bible describes this repentance as essential in the salvation process. God does not call people to himself who simply go, you know what, God, I've seen how you treat Christians. I'd like you to treat me that way. I want to be a Christian. Now, sometimes the way God treats Christians makes people sensitive and open, and the Holy Spirit uses that. But what really happens is God, by his Spirit, pricks the conscience of a person and makes them aware of their need of a Savior, then the forgiveness comes when there's an acceptance of the wrong. That's the way it's meant to work. So that repentance and faith become the vehicle of salvation. Repentance and faith, both the work of God, empowering us to do them, become the vehicle by which forgiveness is given to us. Now, Forgiveness can be given when that dynamic doesn't occur between human beings. You can walk in such a way that even if somebody doesn't acknowledge wrong, there is a small f forgiveness that you walk in that allows you to not be held victim to their behavior. It allows you to be able to think about the offense without being ruled by the memory of that offense. It allows you to think of that person without wishing them harm or revenge. You're truly free. You've forgiven. But ultimately, what God wants is not people who just forgive everybody. He ultimately wants a deep reconciliation among people. And reconciliation cannot occur until there is a reestablishment of trust. And that often happens when one person says, I own this portion, I'm sorry for my part, and the other person goes, hey, man, with that foundation, I I can do this. And that's not a human invention. That is flowing from the mechanical way that God works in us using the Holy Spirit to make us aware of our need of a Savior. In acknowledgement of the rub that happens in life, look at Luke 17. Jesus is speaking here, and he says these words. Take heed of yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. 
So the truth is, is God wants us to rebuke those that genuinely wrong us. Now, if you're wronged all the time, you're the problem. There are certain people who are given to offense, and the Bible speaks against that. That's for a different lesson. And if you're never wronged, the problem is you. In a broken world, you're going to be wronged. And in the body of Christ, and in a family particularly, it's important that when those rubs and bumps occur, that there are times when we say, oh, I call foul on that. Healthy, mature, biblical people call foul when there is a moving violation on the field. And that's what Jesus said here. Go to them and rebuke them. Now, why do you rebuke them? You don't rebuke them so you can lash out in anger. The whole point of is you call them to repentance so that forgiveness can be offered, but ultimately so that the two distant people can come back together. Now, this is difficult to do. There are a lot of unresolved issues. There's a lot of lack of reconciliation in churches and in families because people who were supposed to call the rebuke did not do it. That's just biblical. That's not Ben. By the way, the Apostle Paul never had a problem with this. If you read in the Bible consistently in the New Testament, Paul is often calling people to both praise their activity and to call attention to their activities that were damaging and hurtful. Not just Paul, the other apostles as well. In John's writing, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, little just as an example, John writes about some people that are doing really good, and then he writes about some people that are doing really bad. So he writes this phrase, he says, Diotrephes would be first. Have nothing to do with him. Avoid him. He causes us a lot of trouble. Now, I don't know what you get out of that passage, but I get two things. First, don't name your son Diotrephes. That's the first thing I get out of that. Because he is forever immortalized in the pages of Scripture as a bad example. But also, look, there's John, who's the beloved disciple, uh, perpetually talking about grace. And he's saying, don't be a part of that guy and his behavior. So they have no problem calling it out. Now, what was the point? In hopes that Diotrephes would turn and come back to God and do it right. Right? Now, you know how much easier it would be? when every time a husband or a wife acts foolish in a marriage, if they would say, you know what, I, I was foolish. My words, my tone, my actions, my hiddenness, my sin, this, that's on me. But you know what typically happens? I would have not done that if you had not done X. I only did that because you do the thing. I only spent the money because you spent the money. I only withdrew because of what you did. If you hadn't spoken to me that way, we wouldn't have done it. And the truth is, some of that's true. But for reconciliation to happen, the forgiveness has to flow when there is an acknowledgement of culpability. I was wrong. Now, this is going to be a little silly, but imagine my wife coming to me and saying, Honey, once again, you've proven you're smarter than me. I'm wrong. Now, that's never happened. Thank God, because that'd just be weird and strange, right? I'd love for that to happen, but it's never happened. What's actually happened regularly is she's come to me, I've gone to her, and I, we've said stuff like this. Now, often not in the moment. You know what? When I said that, I was a little sharp. When I said that, I was angry, and I used my anger as a justification, but the truth is you didn't deserve that. My, my wife's a great mom, and so a lot of times, and certainly not in front of our kids, um, because she knows me, and she knows it probably just inflame me, but many times when we get alone after an engagement with our kids, she'll say to me, I don't know if you handled that the best. And when she first did that a couple times, I was like, 
You know, don't push. It's just us in the room. Just us in the room. I just want to talk through this, right? And what's she doing? She's given me an opportunity to own a certain portion. And when she does that, because I know our hearts, listen, we share our desire to be good parents together. When she does that, it allows me to engage that space. She calls it out, but it allows me to engage the space. She does it respectfully. She doesn't demean me. She does it with a shared value, but it allows me to engage the space. And then I'm able to go, you know, I think you're right. That happens a lot. And, and, and vice versa. It goes the other way, too. So much better than the first several years of our marriage where every little offense, you know, for the first year, I've told you this, for the first year of my marriage, I just stuffed them down. I did the forgive and forget. It doesn't matter. My job's just to serve you. And of course, by serving means whatever you want, that's what we do. But underneath, I was a boiling, seething kettle of ugliness as I constantly repressed and just gave in. And then when it blew, it blew. And we had to learn a new way. If we're going to walk reconciled with each other and in partnership, we've got to deal with the way we bump into each other. Some of you have dealt with family members who have a penchant for lying. And it's hard, isn't it? Because you don't even know if the thing they're telling you now is even true. How much easier is it if there is a pattern of, I accept the blame for this. Now listen, if it's a middle school kid we're talking about, there ain't no fixing it. They got to grow out of that. It's got to grow out of it. I mean, you got to lean in and all that, but some of that's just maturity. And, but if you're like 25 and you're lying all the time, it's you. And you're going to ruin your relationship. The much better path is I'm wrong and I'm ashamed and I hide. So would you forgive me? And then I'm going to bring transparency to the issue that we're talking about. I'm going to give you access See, rebuke is part of the call to forgiveness. And rebuke, though, doesn't obligate the person that you're rebuking to repent, but it gives you a chance to walk in obedience with what Jesus said. You rebuke in hopes of reconciling. And where you can't deal with the offense, then what's left is we're pretending and play-acting at relationships. This happens in families all the time. It happens in marriages. The issues are there, but we're pretending for the sake of the kids. All right, I get it, but that's not the life God has called you to. Or you do it in churches. Like there's a thing that should be talked about, we don't want to talk about it. Because Christians are just nice, and of course to talk about an issue would make us not nice. But what happens then is I just kind of nicely treat you like my sister in Christ, but I don't really want to have a relationship with you, because at the end of the day, you dance on my, la on my last nerves with high heels. That's the way it feels. But I can, I can fake that for an hour on Sundays. So that's why Jesus says in Luke 23, look at these words. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what to do. This is his leaning in, trying to get where that other person is because he wants a relationship. So Jesus here acknowledges that there may not be a repentance, but for himself, he wants to not carry that. Let me give you some practical godly realities. There is a time and a place for confrontation, rebuke, and pointing out our displeasure. And that time is not always, and it's not never. Again, if it's always offense, it's you. And if it's never offense, it's you. But the truth is, is it's usually more frequent than most people are comfortable with. And I'm going to suggest to you as a pastor, this is Ben, not the Bible, that many, many dysfunctions in families exist because things were never allowed to be discussed with honesty and transparency. 
And I'm not suggesting everything needs to be, and you can't make people who don't want to do it. But as an individual follower of Jesus, you can get good at saying to people, I don't like where we are. What can I do to make us better? Which is really what we're talking about here. So God's call to forgive doesn't mean we have to go through life as a punching bag. Paul regularly rebuked and placed boundaries around people who, whose brokenness caused them to act in really ugly ways. They brought harm to themselves, to others, to the church body, to church leaders. He called them out in hopes that they would turn. And then number two, here's the second thing. Forgiveness and reconciliation are related, but they're not the same thing. Total forgiveness puts aside all bitterness, all plans for revenge. It allows you to think about the offense without being consumed by the emotion. But in reconciliations, both parties actively work to repair the breach, which means it's not always going to happen. You can't make somebody want to reconcile. This is painful for me in trying to help couples come back together after adultery. Sometimes it's just not possible, and the Bible actually allows for it not to occur. But it can be a very beautiful thing as well. But both have to agree. There usually has to be an admission of culpability, a genuine desire to forgive, an incredible, transparent, open, and above-board set of behaviors for several months, if not years, and then there can be genuine reconciliation. So forgiveness, by the way, when I forgive you, it doesn't make you trustworthy. It does make room for trust to be rebuilt. The whole point of forgiving is so that we can be reconciled. But where trust has been broken over time and repeatedly or so deep hurt or so egregious a thing, sometimes the trust is virtually impossible. But forgiveness can often give us space to rebuild trust between one another. So this is what happens with a teenager who lies. You go out of town, they have a party, whatever. You come back, I'm very disappointed with you, now I don't trust you. Well, that's not the statement once and for all for their life. But over time, if they now begin to act responsibly in light of the conversation, you can perhaps think about going out of town once again when they're 35 years old, perhaps. And uh, you get the point, right? So trust has to be earned over time through acts that are in keeping with repentance. This is why it's very, very difficult to repetitively be close to a liar or to somebody who won't admit fault ever, or won't even admit a portion of the dynamic as their responsibility. So where the breaches are frequent or deep, it may take a long time, if ever, before reconciliation can occur. Biblically speaking, we are called to forgive. We're obey. We are, we're given the command. We're supposed to obey Jesus when he says, forgive, or your heavenly Father won't forgive you. That's just what the scripture says. I don't like that passage one bit. That's on us. Forgiveness is on you. You don't need anybody else to forgive and begin to walk in forgiveness. It's easier when they do. You don't have to have it. Reconciliation, though, requires two people working together. So reconciliation is not always going to happen. Sometimes it shouldn't happen. The Bible actually talks about those. Again, I've already referenced one. One is in the case of adultery. If one of the spouses wants to leave, they are free, biblically speaking, to walk. doesn't mean they have to, but they could. And sometimes when the pain has been so deep or the sin has been so egregious, like sexual assault, or repetitive violence in the home, then reconciliation should not be sought. Forgiveness, though, can still allow the people who have been wronged to walk free of the pain of constantly being defined by the moment. So reconciliation 
that downplays the need for repentance is not based on love, but sentimentality, a false sense of can't we all just get along? Well, we can all get along when we all come to the table willing to live our lives by the values that Christ calls us to. Otherwise, it's very difficult for us all to get along. And I can be nice even if we all don't get along, but I can't really walk in unity with people who aren't in unity with what God calls Christians to be in unity to. So when you stood before God and a minister and a church and you said, uh, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, better, for worse, and all that, and you made these vows, well, if somebody's not keeping their vows, it's very difficult to walk in unity. In fact, it's impossible to genuinely be reconciled. So when we downplay the need for repentance and we don't want to talk about the issues, it shortchanges real reconciliation, and it instead offers a role-playing substitute for life together. And this is not what God wants. So instead, we are supposed to be purveyors and operators of offering forgiveness, in part simply because we were forgiven, but in part because our heart is supposed to be ultimately for reconciliation. I don't know if the pain that happened to you is the kind that can be reconciled or not. Some of you were hurt by somebody who's no longer living. Reconciliation is impossible. But you can still walk in forgiveness given the power of God at work in you. If you'll do some of the things we're going to talk about and open your heart to God, the power of the gospel that saved you is the same power that can come in and break the chains of unforgiveness and bitterness that have taken root in your heart. I want to give you five quick things. We're not going to spend much time on them. They're in the bottom of your message notes. Here's some ways to begin moving forward. Now, today has been a bit academic. Next week, I'm going to go practical, all right? Let me give you five things to think about, though. Number one, God knows your pain. He cares. Tell him how you feel. He wants you to forgive so you are free of the hate, the fear, the anger, the trepidation, the anxiety. He wants you free of that. So tell him how you feel. And when you're telling him how you feel, don't get stuck. Number two, give God permission to change how you feel. God, I hate her. Now, privately, not to her, but to God, that's acceptable. But God, I don't want to feel that way. Help me. God, I want to give you permission to move in my heart and move my, my, my emotions in the directions you would want me to go. God, I don't want to reconcile with that person. That's okay to tell the Lord. But God, I think you might want me to, and I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to, but would you move my heart? In that direction, number three, take time to reflect on your own sin, all of it. Now, your sin doesn't justify somebody else's sin because you did X doesn't mean they get to do Y. But when you think about your own sin, even sin that doesn't relate to the offense that you're thinking about, it allows you to remember that you are a recipient of God's grace. Don't forget that. That is the right place to begin thinking about forgiveness and reconciliation. When you Think about your own sin occasionally and how gracious, grateful you are that God has graciously saved you. What it does is it humbles you and gives you a sense of the power of God's grace, the very power that you need to work in your life. Number four, most importantly here perhaps, even if you don't feel it, this is good advice. Let God manage any revenge and quit dreaming of harm to the other person including the harm that comes when you talk about them to other people and you just tell your story or you're just telling the truth or whatever phrase you use to justify really running somebody else down. Don't do it. 
you're going to regret it. It's going to stoke the fire. It's not going to put water on the fire of the offense. And then finally, I want to next week really explore this idea, how to pray for the one that hurt you and set some what I call be nice goals. I'm not asking about faking it, but I'm talking about how it is that you can be pleasant and kind to even people that have hurt you in hopes of building a foundation and an environment where real reconciliation can occur. A reconciliation that you're not completely responsible for, but you are responsible for yourself in that dynamic to both forgive and be open to it. So, one of the most beautiful moments of my life was talking to my father after that hospital visit, visit, where he sat down with his relative who pulled the trigger, that killed his father, that threw the family into abject poverty, the hate that he carried for years, and knowing that my father looked this man in the eyes and with genuine, sincere heart, born of years of effort and prayer, I forgive you. I want to share with you the greatest news this world has ever heard. And he led him in a prayer to receive Christ as his Savior. That's not an esoteric story I read somewhere else. It's the testimony of a man whose life I saw up close and personal, which means what I'm telling you is not fake. It's real. That is the power of the gospel at work, not just at your salvation, but all through your life, reconciling you fully to God. And when God reconciles you fully to himself, part of what he's going to do, he's going to help you reconcile with others. And where you can't, he's going to give you a peace about that and a comfort in that situation. So would you do this? Would you grab out your connect card right now? This is that thing that Pastor Josh told you about earlier. We're going to take some steps Remember, in our church, we don't believe you hear a message just to be stirred. We want to actually take some steps. So I'm going to offer you five. Here's the first one. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior. God, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Would you save me? And then the Lord of your life. God, I repent, and now I turn to follow you as the leader of my life. If you want to do that, take the pen. Check next step A. I'm going to lead you in a moment in prayer that simply says, God, save me. I can't save myself. I trust the work that Jesus did on the cross and in raising from the dead. I trust in that alone to save me. If you want to do it, put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by in a few moments. Pray with me in a second and say to God, God, I want to be right with you. All right, next step B, I want to be baptized on April 12th. Again, we have three coming up right now. April 12th is our next one. By the way, that's Easter Sunday. It's a great day to be baptized. If you want to do that or have questions, check the box. A member of our team will be in contact with you. Next step C. Now, this might require some honesty. It says, I have some brokenness in a relationship I care about. Please pray with me. Now, you can tell us what it is on your Connect card in the prayer request, or you can just check the box and leave it somewhat anonymous or at least non-disclosed. And I promise you, every morning this week, I'll pray with you that God will work a deep miracle of forgiveness and reconciliation where possible in your life. And that you can walk free of the offense so that that thing that happened to you doesn't define you for the rest of your life. Next step D, it says, hey, I'm interested in going on a mission trip with 4C. We're going in September back to Cuba. If you're interested in this, you simply check the box. There's a meeting coming up. If you check the box, we'll send you the info. If you check the box, you're not signing up. You're just signing up to get the info. So if you have any interest at all, check it. You get that. You can figure out what you want to do. Click through the links and come to the meeting, and that's how we get started, all right? And the next step, E, please RSVP me for the GROW classes. We offer GROW every Sunday after church. There's lunch, and then each week there's a different class. Week one, two, three, and four. 
It's all about understanding what it is to be a Christian, about reading the Bible in prayer, about how God has wired you with spiritual gifts, and then how it is you can leverage your life to make a difference in this world. Grow one, two, three, four. If you've not done any of them or are interested in them, check the box. We'll send you the link to all of them and the information, and then you can follow through as you feel prompted and as you want, all right? Now, if you call this church home, would you set aside that card for just a moment? And some folks are going to come forward, and they're going to receive now from us our tithe and our offering. If you're our guest, this is not for you. You do not have to participate. There's a reason why you don't have to, because the people in this church are incredibly generous. I want to tell you a couple ways that you guys have been generous. I love to celebrate that with you. But we are moving now into phase two of part of our Christmas offering initiative. So behind this wall, there's a car lift now installed. All the legalities have been worked through. Most of the paperwork of like how we're going to do the sign up and stuff is done. So what this means is in the next month, those of you that signed up to volunteer to help, you'll begin to get some communications, kind of some meetings. You'll hear the scope of the ministry. And here's effectively what we're doing. If you're in this church and you can't afford basic car maintenance, we'll do it for you for free. And in a few months, once we get the system worked out, if you have people in your life who could just benefit from some gentle, free car maintenance, we're going to give you the ability to invite your friends and family and neighbors to come participate and get theirs done for free as well. We're not going to the community at large. We're going to our community. So thank you, Four Corners, for that. It's moving along right on the timeline we said it would. So in the next couple of weeks, those of you that wanted to be a part will get to hear that. Here's how we get to do that, because at our Christmas offering, you guys not only met the goals, but you exceeded it. That means our work in Cuba, our work with orphans in India, our work here with New Life Mission, the Healing Center, and now our own kind of CARS ministry, especially for single moms and people who are on a fixed income. That means it all gets to move exponentially. Our goal was 80000 And as of yesterday, because it keeps clicking up, we're at $93,078. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, Jesus. So all of that stuff's funded now, which means all we got to do is continue to walk out the path. And somewhere by the end of March, we're going to have our first engagements. We'll figure out the system with the lift and how we're going to help people. And by the time we get to midsummer, you're all going to get the ability to invite people you know who you want to bless to come to be a part of our church's expression of love to our community. So just thank you for that. It's a big, 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 big deal. And I want to remind you that while we're in here having service right across this room, people who cannot pay for the ministry they're experiencing, our kids and our students, are being loved on. They have an incredible space. The curriculum is life-changing, and adults are investing in them in powerful and life-changing ways because you pay for it. So thank you for giving more than just the bare minimum so that our church can do what God has called us to do. We're going to pray about our next steps in our offering right now, and then we're going to celebrate in baptism, all right? Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace given to us that we did not deserve. I thank you that you forgive us and you reconcile us to yourselves. I thank you that you wanted a relationship with us so bad that you did all the work. All we have to do is say yes. Now, Father, would you take our next steps? Would you take our offerings? And when you cause them both to go far and wide, make deep impact in our lives, in our community, in our church, by our obedience. Father, I thank you for the lives, these three people who've committed themselves to you and who you have committed yourself to them. We celebrate all that you're doing in their lives. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.